This episode is brought to you by Upcase. Now that you've mastered the basics, Upcase makes it easy for you to take the next step. Not a boot camp or a MOOC, we're a finishing school. We'll show you how the best developers around tackle coding challenges, what their backgrounds are, and how they got to where they are. Stick with us, and soon you'll be taking the junior out of your title. Learn more at upcase.com. Welcome to this episode of Crossroads. Today I am joined by Joel from our Boston offices, and maybe you could do a little quick intro about what you do here at ThoughtBot. So I'm a developer, ThoughtBot. That's, that's, that's it. kind of it. <laughs> um, how long have you been here? Uh, just under five years. Okay, great. So very similar time frame to Melissa, actually. We started on the same day. Wow, okay. <laughs> great, great. And what stack do you work in primarily? So on the back end, it's mostly Rails. And then on the front end, it's some JavaScript. And recently, I've gotten into a lot of Elm, which is a functional type language similar to Haskell that compiles down to JavaScript. Interesting. What were you doing before you joined ThoughtBot? Not that there is such a thing as life before ThoughtBot, but, <laughs> but imagine that there was. <laughs> I was doing an internship, an IT internship. So was doing some coding there, learned Rails at that internship. So an IT internship, how is yes. that different to a tech internship? It's basically the same thing. Okay. And what did that compose of? It was actually very software development oriented. They let me kind of pick what I wanted to specialize in. They had more of an operations track and more of a software development track. And people kind of shuffled between the two. But I really liked software development. So that's what I focused on. Awesome. Awesome. Did you study software development at university or before you went on the IT internship? I did a computer science degree. Okay, great. And how was that? It was good. It was not what I expected. Interesting. So before doing my degree, I had picked up just a little bit online and read some books and enough to write some programs on my own. But I got really frustrated because everything I built past a certain level just kind of imploded under its own complexity. Right. And I knew like professionals know how to build software that scales really big. Why can't I architect my code well? Right. And I thought that a CS degree would tell me that. And it doesn't really focus so much on, like, you learn some things about design patterns. You learn some things about algorithms and data structures. But it's very high level and not super practical for day to day. So the programs that you were building before you started your computer science degree, how long had you been writing code before you were building imploding programs? Maybe a year, two years. So this was very much just a hobby. It started when I randomly found a tutorial online on how to write HTML. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I understood it and that coding was not just for genius nerds. So I was like, hey, this is fun and I understand it. And I kind of bit by bit learned different things. I kind of taught myself some basic PHP and then wrote some pretty horrible code because I didn't know any better and read some more books and improved and wrote better code and then eventually got to the point where I was trying to build more complex apps and it just wouldn't hold up. Right, right. So I'm going to go back slightly to your perception of coding as intrinsically linked to genius nerds. Where did that come from? I think that's just something that's out there in society. I would say that's completely false. What was so eye-opening for me when I saw the HTML tutorial was that 
it seems so simple and so clear and I understood it. And I was so excited that it wasn't for just geniuses, but that someone like me could understand it. Right, right, definitely. And you mentioned the high levels of abstraction that were being dealt with in the computer science degree that you were in, and your sort of desperation to just find a way to scale your programs. Did you run through semesters each semester hoping that this would be the one where they teach me how to scale? Yes, yes. And I would be like, okay, this next class on software engineering, it's got software and engineering in the title. It's (laughs) definitely going to teach me not really. They're like, oh, well, data structures, that sounds really core to what I'm doing. And not really. So yeah, that was a little bit disappointing. Yeah. When did you finally feel like, aha, this is where I'm going to learn how to do this thing that I've desperately hoped to learn over the last couple of years? It was actually during the internship that I did. Okay. uh, Because we were building a Real Rails app. And here I was learning how to build something that was actually going to be used in industry. And we were we were building it. It was a new Rails app from scratch. And I kind of got to learn all the pieces. And I was just so excited to show up for work every day because it was like, this is what I've been wanting to know for the past few years. And now I'm finally learning it. Definitely. Definitely. That's great. And to what degree... After you finished your computer science. So you, you had this internship that you did for a few months, I'm imagining? Ye- a year. A year. It was a year-long internship. Okay, wow. That's that's a long internship. Yes, it was. How did you sustain internship interest? Because, I mean, most internships seem to be between three and six months. And after which point, it feels like a job. It's not an internship anymore. How did you maintain your interest throughout that time? It was kind of halfway between an internship and a job. It kind of took me from zero to, I'd say, very strong junior developer, kind of almost intermediate to the point where I was running projects internally within the company. Wow. So, you know, there were small projects, but, you know, I would be assigned and say, hey, build this thing. Mm-hmm. How would you describe that transition moment? So you mentioned that within that year, you moved from Zero, which I would disagree because you have some, you had some things under your belt. You had the PHP programs that you were writing before the computer science degree. I imagine during the computer science degree, you were working on some stuff there. Yes. yes. So perhaps you were, you know, single digits in this arbitrary scale rather than zero. And maybe this internship accelerated your learning from what you've been saying. Absolutely. Right, right. So going from the things that I'm building keep crashing. Oh, I just want to like learn how to make them not crash. To I'm in an internship where I love waking up every morning and going to this job. To a year later, hey, maybe I'm not so bad. And maybe I'm like a developer, maybe. Does that accurately describe yes. those moments? Great. And so at the point where you graduate from the internship, how do you pitch yourself? Do you say, hi, I'm Joel. I'm a junior developer. Do you say... Actually, I'm an intermediate, mid-level developer, and I've got some stuff under my belt that I'm happy to show you, and I have some ideas. Like, how did you go on to the next point in your career? I tried not to pigeonhole myself as a like ex-developer. I pitched myself as just a developer to a few places, and sort of like you saying, like, hey, here's what I can do. I've built multiple Rails apps over the past few year or the past one year, and here's some sample projects that I've built and then kind of took that into interviews. That's a really strategically strong tactic because no one can say, well, you're not a developer, you're a junior developer. It kind of puts you in a good position. Yeah, 
that that makes a lot of sense and I think that will bring a lot of solace to a lot of people who are like I don't know if I'm a junior or a mid-level or a senior or an experienced developer it's like well maybe just pitch yourself as a developer and see what happens right right Uh, and I kind of let it to the companies to sort of judge my skill level on whatever their internal scale was right right one thing that you've just touched on which has brought a lot of confusion to people is internal scales there's no external schema for figuring out where we sit on the scale and so how do you deal with you know doing maybe five to ten job interviews with varying internal ideas of what your level is so in one interview they might perceive you to be a junior and another they might perceive you to be a very senior developer and you kind of have to move between these these expectation levels how would you prepare or anticipate those sorts of expectations in interview? I think being aware of that ahead of time, there is no one like universal industry-wide, this is a junior developer right. and this is a intermediate and this is senior. And so it really is going to vary a lot depending on where you go, how they interpret your skill level. So don't put too much into titles and what the company calls it and focus more on what your actual skill is. Can you do X, Y, and Z? Are you able to work with other people, collaborate on projects? Do you know these tools? Can you invest in other people? Can you help other people along? That's so interesting. I mean, I think four of the five things we just mentioned involve other people. And many of the responses we've been getting about like what people's expectations are of moving or transitioning from junior to not junior involve them individually becoming better coders and better programmers. But a lot of what you've been saying actually involves like, well, no, you yourself need to grow as a as an individual, but the test, the real gritty stuff comes from other people. Absolutely. I heard someone say a while back, and it's kind of interesting, the how they sort of greeted junior, intermediate, and uh, advanced was all related on, on interactions with other people. Interesting. So a junior person is, in their opinion, someone that needs some hand-holding. That's not 100% able to complete tasks on their own, needs some supervision, some help from other people. An intermediate would be someone who is able to just do things on their own, and then a senior person is someone who's able to kind of walk along someone else and, and help them out. Interesting. I don't know that I 100% agree with that, but it was an interesting way of thinking about it rather than just... How many JavaScript frameworks do you know? Right, right. What are your points of disagreement with that statement? I would disagree that you need to be senior to help someone else. So when I was an intern, two weeks into the program, they brought on a new intern. And I was just so excited about the things that I'd learned that I was like, hey, you're brand new. I have only two weeks on you, but let me show you what I know. And almost like mentoring them, helping them out for the first two weeks, kind of bringing them to the little level that I had. And it helped them, but honestly, it helped me a lot as well, really to solidify the concepts. So helping out other people and teaching and mentoring is something you can do if you've got only two weeks of knowledge or if you've got 20 years. You don't need to wait until you're senior. Do you think you can spot developers who have that sort of built into their framework or those who don't? Can you tell from working with developers whether or not they take that sort of stuff seriously? Definitely over the long term. I think it's harder to see that maybe just in an interview. But if you work with them for a few weeks or a month, you definitely start seeing those those patterns of interactions with other people. Awesome. awesome. Right? Do they care if somebody else comes and asks them a question or are they just like, get out of my hair, I want to focus on this problem? 
Yeah, I, I mean, one thing that I've always noticed with very senior people or rather experienced people is that they always have time for everyone. Yeah, it's maybe an you know, untold secret. <laughs> you will definitely find those people who are the maybe the exception to that, who are very focused on their work and just don't care about other people. Mm. But the reality of software is it's built in teams. It's not built by lone geniuses. Right. And collaboration is huge. And honestly, one of the fastest ways to move forward in learning more things technically, but also just interpersonally, is helping other people. And so you're more likely to reach senior faster if you're helping out others. Great. That's very quotable. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of you know, this, this spirit of collaboration and teamwork, how important do you think it is for people at every level to be doing things like conference talks or podcasts or sh showing their work, basically, and sharing their working? I think it varies. It's good for building a personal brand, but you don't you – know, I, I wouldn't say it's a must-have. It's probably a good thing to do. It puts you in contact maybe with other ideas, forces you to articulate your thoughts. At the very least, I would recommend people blog. It's almost – kind of like teaching somebody else, but just kind of putting it out there for the world. Right. I'd say that you learn more by teaching someone else than you do by writing a blog post. But a blog post, I'd say the close second. So if you learn a new topic or you think you know a new topic, write a summary of what you've learned and why it is, and it'll make your thoughts clear, you know, clarify the parts that you understand and the ones that you don't. And, you know, it's something that somebody else can learn from. And at the same time, you know, solidifies your knowledge of the topic. Brilliant. And like you said, showing your work, it's something you can point to employers. Like, what do you know? Well, hey, here are 20 things I learned and you know, tutorials explaining them in the past six months. Awesome. That's really great. How do you hire and what do you look for in people that you hire? I think it's a, it, it depends a little bit on the level and... It depends on the role, but obviously you want you know basic level of interpersonal skills. You want someone that's able to collaborate in a team environment, somebody that's willing to learn, someone that's excited to learn. You don't want somebody who thinks they know it all and have kind of arrived at the destination because in software, you're never at the destination. Right. Ideally, somebody that likes to share what they have. If they know something, they're going to try to help out other people to know it. That's you know, a very strong part of the culture here at ThoughtBot is improving not just ourselves, but the company and even the, the wider community of software developers. So it seems that you've gone from pre-CS degree, writing some stuff, experimenting, really, yes. sandboxing a lot of things, then going into your CS degree and kind of like grounding yourself in theory and grounding yourself in a lot of like meta stuff, which is quite useful, I suppose, in the future. And then now you've got this experience at this IT internship where you're finally getting to put theory into practice. And then you join ThoughtBot and you've been here for quite some time. I wonder where, and this is the antithesis of like most questions I've been asking, at what points did you almost quit? I don't know that I ever almost quit. So during the CS degree, I would say, is when I almost decided to give it up. I've always loved just the act of programming. That's been a, just a hobby, something I do for fun. But CS was not what I expected. And I felt like I was not getting what I wanted out of it. And, you know, it was very hard. And it was something that I considered quitting for a while, particularly during all the math classes. <laughs> 
you know, I'm not much of a math person, so you know, I really struggled through some of those. You mentioned helping others quite frequently throughout our conversation. What are the ways outside of work that people in the developer community can help others apart from so you've mentioned blogs that's a really great way of not only building your personal brand but like showing your working you mentioned that working t- with e- with another person and i assume sort of pair programming in your spare time or mentoring in your spare yes. time might be a good a good way of putting that into action how have you entered that scene because it, there's so many meetups around there's so many groups that meet outside of work how do you know which one to join how do you know like how to become a mentor it's not necessarily the case that you just sign up as a volunteer and then you know all of the things about helping another human being do this thing that you do all the time that they've never encountered before how do you learn how to be a good mentor a lot of it is sort of trial and error and most people don't expect you to be an expert mentor they're just looking for help right so a lot of meetups kind of fall into one of two categories either kind of more formal talks or more hands-on writing software. And so if you're at a meetup where you're doing the more the hands-on writing software kind of things and somebody there is just struggling and you know the answer, you can help them out. You don't have to be like an official volunteer, an official mentor. You can just be someone that's like, hey, I solved this problem last week. I can give you a hand. Or maybe even you don't know the answer, but you're like, hey, let's go at this as a team. Let's talk through it. And oftentimes talking through a solution or a problem makes the solution more obvious. Yeah. So being there for people at a meetup like that is a great way to kind of enter in with very little commitment. Also, a lot of language communities have IRC channels or Slack channels that you can join and people will just ask questions there. And answering questions can be really helpful for the people there and for yourself. So I mentioned I'm recently learning the language Elm, and I started hanging out in their Slack and their beginners channel. And a lot of people are asking questions, even really simple things like, is there a function that does X? And I would just look up the documentation and like paste a link. You know, it's the kind of thing we can say, well, you know, you could Google this, but you know, I'm going to take 30 seconds, look up the documentation for them, link to it. And now they've got the answer to their problem, but then also I become more familiar with the library. I honestly want to say that you're doing God's work. (laughs) 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 Because, yeah, I mean, there's also something around like just the approach that you're that you're talking about, which makes such a huge difference in in creating an environment where people feel safe asking, quote, stupid, unquote, questions because no question is actually stupid. Right. Particularly if the channel's called Beginners, beginners right. there should be no judgment for right. any question. Yeah, and I mean, we see this a lot in, you know, I won't quote the biggest space to ask questions for programmers, but <laughs> <laughs> we, all, we all know that what that is. And I remember when I was starting to learn, it just felt like I'm going to ask a stupid question and 30 people on the internet are going to let me know how stupid I am for asking that question. So I'm just not going to ask it. And I'm going to find some other alternative way of asking this question because the the fear of the, you're asking a stupid question. It's so visceral in certain learning spaces. And I think, I mean, I go back to this idea of like answering a question, even though it's Googleable, is really, really important because it makes that person feel like A, someone's listening and B, that person isn't judging them. Right. You're caring about their success, not showing how smart you are. Yeah. Yeah. Just again with the quotables. Like, 
<laughs> definitely, definitely. And one other thing I'm really keen to kind of hear from you on is how you deal with imposter syndrome, not assuming that you have any, but I, this has come up almost every single podcast episode we've had, that imposter syndrome acts as a blurring of our ability to perceive what we're really like and it skews our vision of ourselves and it stops us from really presenting who we are to other people because sometimes we might like over present ourselves because we're trying to compensate for imposter syndrome or under present ourselves because we're trying to not be seen as a know-it-all how do you navigate that space if that is a space that you feel you have to navigate no i've, I've definitely been there it's it's tricky i think like you said, sometimes you want to kind of overshoot the mark, which kind of happened after my internship. I was applying at various places. And I was like, you know, thought, thought they're like super senior people. I'd love to work for them, but I'm probably not at their level. Hey, you know what? I'll apply anyway. And they actually, so I went through the interviews and they brought me in here. And when I came to pair with the team, I was just blown away about just how smart they were and just how much they knew of all of this deeper sort of software engineering and just way to structure and architecting software that I was dying to know. I was like, wow, these people are so smart. They know all the things I want, but they're just, I'm obviously out of their league. I'm not going to get this job. And they turned me down for the position, but they offered me an apprenticeship, which I thought about as a three-month time period where you come on and you're kind of accompanied by a mentor. Every month you get a different mentor and you work with them on their client project. So you get to see three different projects, three different people and how they work. And at the end of that, if everything goes well, they, hopefully you get offered a full-time position, which is what happened to me. So that's sort of an instance of overselling yourself a little bit and it working out, right? Mm -hmm. After I got hired, I was just completely crushed by imposter syndrome because I'm like, I'm a consultant. I have to go out and like uphold the level of all these other people that I'm working with. And I really saw myself as like the worst developer in the company, you know, which is, is a lot of room for growth. And when you're working with people that you look up to and who know more than you do, it's a you know, tremendous opportunity to grow. But it's also you know very heavy on you with the, the weight of upholding that. Particularly, I feel in a consulting environment where you're sent out on a project that may or may not have another person, and they're expecting you to perform at the same level as everybody else. Whereas maybe in a more of a product company, people just assume, okay, you're not quite at the level of somebody else, but that's fine. We'll all just kind of work together. But I think it was also a tremendous opportunity of growth for me because people expected me to act more or less like a senior developer, and I kind of did. Uh, sort of grew into the people's expectations of me. Mm. So it did work out in the end for me. But it was definitely that first year was, I felt under a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I can imagine. And I can relate to. Tell me more about what it's like now. I mean, that was that was quite a few years ago. And is this nirvana? Have you reached a point of imposter syndrome-less space where you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about feeling like you don't know things. Are you in the land of the free? <laughs> <laughs> I said definitely like day to day, I feel much more comfortable about where I am yeah. technically. When I'm working with a client and they're asking me a question, I'm comfortable answering that question or making technical recommendations, things like that. At the same time, there's always more to learn. 
always like new technologies, new new things, other directions to explore. And there's a lot that I don't know. And so there's definitely times where I feel like, oh, everybody knows this technology and I don't. And, you know, that that is feeling not as good. But I think it's not as bad as when you feel like you don't know anything. Once you've reached a point where you're like, okay, I'm pretty good at these two or three things. And now I can improve on, the, you know, thing four and five. It's not quite the same level of feeling kind of that helplessness. Yeah. How important are failures for helping you learn? I think it's a mix. You know, failures can kind of feel crushing, but they can also be great opportunities to learn. But you can also learn from success. So I'm not going to say that you need failures to learn, but I'm not going to say that you can skip them either. I think it really just either way. Depends on your attitude. It depends on your attitude and you shouldn't go out of your way to seek them. <laughs> I'm just going to like replay that to myself. It's like, hey, Nat, just don't go out of your way to seek failure. Like, Good point. Well made. Thank you. <laughs> no, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I think we're constantly oscillating as an industry between success bias in the way that certain events or certain products, services, companies are presented to us as astronomical successes, going back to this myth of the genius nerd that you had when you entered yes. the industry. And all of us have really, that we eventually break down with more and more experience and encountering more and more people who are just like us and are normal and like learn things and work together and move forward incrementally rather than astronomically. Right. And on the flip side, there's also like this like fascination with failure and I definitely drink that Kool-Aid I'll put my hands up and, and admit to that so we're kind of oscillating between like oh you have to be like super successful but you have to have like these really like gut-wrenching astronomical failures in order to become super successful so it's it's really interesting hearing someone who's got quite a balanced view of both sort of say maybe we all just need to calm down and sort of see that <laughs> <laughs> it's not either or it's a bit of both yeah yeah. So in like movies and TV and literature, there's this concept of tropes where we yes. sort of created these archetypes and yeah. things. And we have sort of our own mythos in software and startups with its own tropes of the genius who you know, overcomes some failures or overcomes some difficulties and then fails really hard, but in the end succeeds really well. It kind of feels like a classic like three act, you know, or a hero's journey sort yes, of. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, it makes for a great movie or even a great article on Medium. But <laughs> part of that is maybe our literary uh, kind of tropes coming into model reality. Oh, my goodness. You're like, if if maybe we just weren't so restrained in our literary canon, then maybe we could have space for the complexities of life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of mundaneness that happens in between like these episodes of The Hero's Journey, which is just plugging along and answering emails and, you know, doing calendar invites and having endless meetings and just the the day in, day outness of of doing the work that very few people talk about. Actually brings me to the last part of this, which is how do you manage the less glamorous sides of the job? The well, I don't know what your versions are, I know what mine are, but the things that aren't as exciting as the thing that you love the most. I think you kind of, you, you mix it up. Variety is always something strong. And I think as a consultant, you get to have sort of the benefits of that, where you're on projects that sometimes aren't as good, and then you get transferred to projects that are more interesting. 
But I think you can always find something interesting or something to learn in just about any project. And for me, part of what makes a project interesting is, is there anything to learn? Is there something new that I can try here? So I try to find that and then sort of extract what I can learn from it. And then ideally write a blog post about what I learned on this project. Mm, yeah, ThoughtBotters blog a lot. Very much so. <laughs> Our whole ethos is about being open and sharing as much as possible. So if we build a tool that is helpful, we won't just keep it internally. We'll try to make it open source. If we learn a new idea, we don't just write an internal memo. We'll put it on the blog so that anybody can read it. That way we get to share the experiences that we have with the whole community rather than just keeping it internal to us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out to sit down this afternoon and have this chat. It's been really fun. Thanks. Well, thank you for having me.